Take a Bible this morning, find John chapter 8. There are notes in the bulletin where you can follow along with some of the things we're going to discuss. Last week, I was out of town. My family was in Oklahoma. We went to Kingfisher, First Baptist Church, where we served before we moved here. It was the 125th anniversary of that church, and they were celebrating and uh, inviting previous pastors and staff to come back, and so it was a good week. We had been there in Kingfisher for about three years when Chris Harrington emailed me. That was in the fall of 2013, and Emmanuel was looking for a pastor, and we moved about six months later in the spring of 2014, and uh, it was good to be back and to see friends in Oklahoma, but it's better to be here this morning and back with you back home, back at Emmanuel. So we're in the Gospel of John. We have been plowing through John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, which really makes one single episode from the life of Jesus. The events in John 7 and 8 took place during the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so some of you have heard this uh, repeatedly over the last few weeks. Some of you have not been here for this. So we're just going to run through this feast again so you've got the basic idea in your head. This was a feast in Jewish life that took place in the fall. Many, many, many hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem for this particular feast. Being in the fall, they were celebrating the harvest. There was Thanksgiving for another year's food. But more than that, they were looking back. And while they were there in Jerusalem, they were looking back to the time when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt And they lived in tents or booths or little small tabernacles. And God himself lived in the tabernacle right in the middle of the camp of his people. And the people, as they traveled to Jerusalem, they would live in tents or booths or tabernacles. And they were, one, thanking God for a harvest, but more than that, thanking God that he brought them out of bondage in Egypt. That's just important to have filed away in the back of your mind when we read this passage in just a minute. I also want to remind you that it was during this feast where they had a water pouring ceremony that they went through every day. They had a candle lighting ceremony. Corey talked about that. They went through that at the end of the feast. And it was during these ceremonies when Jesus stood up and he offered people living water. When he talked about living water, there was something very visual that they were participating in. And when he claimed to be the light of the world, there was something very visual and very present that they were taking part in at that feast. This was also the time, and we begin to see it this morning. This is the time in Jesus' life when he aggressively began provoking the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about provoking, I think about siblings. I think about me and my sister, and she was the worst provoker. I was innocent in all those situations. She was always provoking me to do things. And I think about my kids and how they can provoke each other so easily. And when I say that Jesus was provoking the Jewish leaders, that may sound strange to you. You may think, so Jesus is like the bratty little sibling, like pestering the other sibling. I don't mean it in a sinful sense, but I also mean that there's no way around the fact that Jesus is really pressing into these guys. In fact, I put this in your notes, John 7 to 8 marks the beginning of Jesus's last fight with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The beginning of his last fight. They've already made plans to murder him. 
This is going to be referenced in this passage. At the end of John 8, they are actually going to pick up rocks to throw them at Jesus in an attempt to murder him. They're not going to kill him for another six months until the Passover rolls around when it's just the right time, when Jesus is ready, when the Father is ready for it to happen. But this is the beginning of the last fight. The time is short. You're just a few months away, and Jesus really begins to provoke these guys. He really begins to poke at the religious leaders, and they begin to be very, very upset. They're already mad at Jesus, but it only gets ratcheted up here in John 7 and John 8. That brings me to the big idea of our passage. It's a short passage this morning, but the big idea is very important. Here it is. True disciples of Jesus abide in his word, and they experience freedom. True disciples of Jesus you're truly a disciple, you will abide in his word, and when you abide in Jesus' word, you will experience freedom. And I just want you to see sort of what's happening in John 7 and John 8. If you look at John 7, verse 31, it says, many of the people believed in him. Many of the people believed in him. But look at the very next sentence. They said, when the Christ appears, we'll Will he do more signs than this man has done? John is sort of telling you something strange here. In a sense, they believe in Jesus. They're excited by Jesus. They're attracted to Jesus. But at the very same time, they look at Jesus and they say, are we sure this is the guy? And John is wanting you to wrestle with this idea of of faith, wrestle with this idea of believing in Jesus. And you're to look at these people and say, did they really believe Or were they just sort of being caught up in the moment? Look at John chapter 8, verse 30. Jesus is teaching, and verse 30 says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. But in our passage, the very next set of verses, there's going to be a fight. There's going to be an argument. They don't believe the truth about who Jesus is. And again, John's wanting you to wrestle with this. Do they believe in Jesus, or do they not believe in Jesus. And in our passage, Jesus is sort of laying out a test, if you will, about who truly believes, who is truly a disciple. And the big idea is simple. A true disciple abides in Jesus's word and experiences freedom. You and I have to get this through our heads. The things that we're talking about this morning, they are true for mission trips. They are true for youth camps. They are true when we do baptisms in this room. They are true for every altar call you've ever experienced or been a part of. They are true for pastor's kids. They are true for prodigals who wander away from the Lord. They are true in any and every situation for any and every person. Many people on the last day will stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, what about all the great things we did for you? We were with you, Jesus. And Jesus will look at those people and say what? To many of them, he will say, depart from me. You're a worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. And we're wrestling with this idea in John 8, and we need to wrestle with it in our own lives, that sometimes you see people who profess to believe in Jesus. They make a profession of faith. But as you look at their life over the long haul, you step back and you say, you know, That person didn't abide in Jesus' word. 
And that person did not experience the freedom from sin and death that Jesus promised. That person may have professed faith in Jesus, but they were not, they were never a true disciple. And so Jesus is laying out this test, and our aim is to wrestle with it this morning. True disciples abide in his word and experience freedom. So let's read the text, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So, word of God, let's pray together. Lord, we come to your word. We believe that it's true. We know that your spirit inspired these words that John wrote down. And so this morning, we simply ask that your spirit would be present among us to illumine and to help us to understand and receive the same words that were inspired so many years ago. Father, be honored as we submit ourselves to the authority of Scripture this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think back to the last time you had an awkward moment where you said something to someone that you almost immediately wished that you could take back. Okay? Some of you have had one of those moments this morning, haven't you? You said something this morning and you thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that out loud. We all have those moments from time to time where something comes out of your mouth and you immediately think, I shouldn't have said that. And I really wish I could dial time back 30 seconds and take that back. I'll give you a few examples from my family. Um, Brooke and I were dating. We were finishing college. We were in a newly married and nearly married Sunday school class in Amarillo. And one of the couples in this class, it was a new class, we were trying to get to know each other, said, hey, I'll have a Christmas party at my house. Everybody come over, bring food. We'll hang out. It'll be great. So we all go over and we're eating and, uh, you know, enjoying each other's company. And Brooke and I find ourselves standing over in the kitchen with the lady whose house we were at, right? The lady who's hosting us. And we're chatting and talking about different things. And she kind of looks around And her voice gets real soft. She kind of does one of these numbers. And she leans over and she says, hey. We say, what? She says, what do you think about this punch? Right? Everything in that moment screamed, Somebody brought the nastiest punch to my party, and if I have to drink another drink of it, I'm going to vomit. I'm going to be sick. 
And so Brooke just spoke right up, and she agreed with what was patently true to everyone at the party. She said, it's the grossest thing I've ever had in my entire life. (laughs) Who made the punch? Oh. (laughs) Wasn't me. It was the lady. It was the lady. It was her house. She made the punch. It was a total setup. It was a total setup. Everything that she said, her body language, her tone, all of it, made you think she wants me to make fun of the punch. And so we made fun of the punch, and then... That was like open mouth, put foot in the mouth, right? One of those awkward moments. So this happened to me. I'll give you one more example. Uh, When I was applying for the PhD program at Southern Seminary, I had to do an interview. I don't know that I've ever been more nervous for any interview, church, job, anything in my entire life. You go into this interview, and it's like do or die. You've done all the steps and the process up to this point, and they say, okay, we're going to interview you, and you're either in the program or you're out of the program. And you sit in this room with four professors, and they sit over, you know, as a panel, and you sit out in the middle of the room all by yourself, defenseless and terrified and shaking. And they start asking me questions. And one of the questions they ask me is, suppose that you find yourself pastoring an established church. Not a church plant, but an established church. How would you approach your ministry at that church? And they asked that question, and I thought, this is my lucky day. I just read a book about that topic. I know the answer. I have something to say. This was going to be intelligent and coherent, and this is going to be great. And so I sort of sat up tall in my seat, and I said, well, as a matter of fact... I was just reading a book called Eating the Elephant by Tom Rainer, and I begin to lay out step by step all the brilliant insights from this book. And as I'm laying it out, the guys in the panel, they're all kind of fidgety. And I'm thinking, this, this is a great answer. I don't know what these guys are so fidgety. I'm expecting head nods, and instead they're all fidgety, and I'm quoting Tom Rainer this and Tom Rainer that. What I didn't know is that the book I had was the first edition of the book, and it was written by Tom Rainer. The second edition of the book had a co-author, Tom Rainer and Chuck Lawless. And guess who was sitting in the room? And I'm quoting Tom Rainer this and Tom Rainer that, and Tom Rainer's the greatest, and Tom Rainer knows everything. All you got to do is what Tom Rainer says. And the co-author of the book is sitting in the room. And all the other guys on the panel are hoping at some point he's going to say something about the other author in the room. And I never did. And I got home and I started thinking about it and I realized what a bonehead thing to say. I just wish I could dial back time and take back the words that came out of my mouth and say it a little bit differently. Listen, if you know nothing about Jesus, if you've never read the Gospels, you've never read the New Testament, and you open to this passage, you might feel like Jesus has one of those open-your-mouth-insert-foot moments. Because Jesus, talking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, begins to say, there is truth out there, and this truth will set you free. And immediately they retort back and they say, wait a minute, we have never, ever, been slaves to anyone. And if you don't know the bigger story, if you don't know the Old Testament and who Jesus is and and all the pieces coming to play in this passage, you may look at that and say, oh, wow, that was awkward. 
He just called them slaves. He implied that they were slaves, and they're reminding him that they've never been slaves. But when you read it in context and you know who Jesus is and you know all the ins and outs of this story, you realize this is not one of those awkward moments that we all have where you just wish you could dial it back and take those words back. This is intentional. This is purposeful. Everything Jesus is saying is an attempt to provoke these men and to expose them to their own hypocrisy. And that's certainly what's happening here. It's not an awkward moment. It's actually very important truth about sin and salvation. And I want you to see that this morning. Truth about sin and salvation in John 8. Here's the first truth. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's straight from the lips of Jesus. If you commit sin, if you practice sin, you will be a slave to the thing that you're doing. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Usually when you and I think about sin, Most people in the Bible Belt, when we think about sin, most of us think sin is the stuff you do that makes you bad. Sin is something you do, or maybe it's something you don't do, but when you do it or you don't do it, it makes you a bad person. And there's certainly some biblical warrant to that idea. The Bible talks about sin as wickedness and immorality and filthiness, and there's certainly this sense that sin makes us bad people. But the biblical idea of sin is far, far worse than sin makes you bad. The biblical idea of sin is actually that sin makes you dead, spiritually dead. Look at what we read in the New Testament. I'll give you two verses. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? Wages are what you earn when you work for somebody. You do the work, you earn the wages. And Paul says, when you sin, the wages that you earn, your due, what you have coming to you is death. Sin leads to death. It doesn't just make you a bad person and you need to try to be better. It's even worse than that. It makes you dead. Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Sin makes you dead. Not just bad, but dead. And then Jesus takes it one step further in John 8 and he says, Sin also makes you a slave. It's not just that you're bad. And it's not even that you're dead, you're actually in bondage to the things that you think will give you joy and happiness and fulfillment in life. I hope you see the great irony that you and I are living in in the United States in 2019. There are people all around us who think that if we can just cast off all moral restraint, we will find freedom to be whoever we want to be. Those people are running on a hamster loop. They're never going to get where they think they're going. Because Jesus says, look, you can cast off all the moral restraint in the world. But when you cast it off, it doesn't make you free. It makes you a slave. It makes you a slave. It reminds me, as I thought about it this week, it reminds me of the novel, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. I don't know if you read this book in high school or in college or maybe as an adult at some point. It was written in the 60s. It's based in the Great Depression, and it's about a family from Oklahoma, the Jode family. And they're living in the Great Depression, and they're desperate. 
They have no other options, and they say, we got to hit the road. We're going to leave Oklahoma. We're going to go to California, and we're going to find work, and we're going to find prosperity, and we're going to find food, and we're going to find security, and it's going to be great. So they pack up everything they have, which isn't much, and they take off for California. And every step, every stop along the road, it seems like the job, the work, the money, the prosperity, the food, it's one more stop down the road. You, you keep thinking, if we can make it to New Mexico, if we can make it to Arizona, if we can make it to California, if we can make it to the next farm over, that's what we're looking for. And you get to the end of the book, and I hate to be a spoiler, but they don't ever find it. They just keep looking. In fact, at the end of the book, they wind up worse off than they were at the beginning of the book. And it's a picture, it's a a story of a lot of different things, but it's an illustration of what Jesus is describing here. People think that if they cast off restraint and they chase this or that, that they'll find freedom. And Jesus says, you're never going to find it. You're running on the hamster wheel. You're putting the, the shackles on your own wrists. It's always a little bit further and you never quite get there. And you never quite experience it. And you never quite find it. Sin doesn't just make you bad. It doesn't just make you dead. It makes you a slave. Jesus says to them, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And what did they say back? They bow up and they raise their voice and they say, we have never been slaves of anyone. I just want you to understand how ridiculous that statement was on the surface of it. These are people who have traveled to Jerusalem They're living in tents for the week. And they're living in tents because many, many years earlier, Yahweh brought their ancestors out of slavery to freedom. That's what they're there to celebrate. Being set free from bondage. And Jesus says, if you know the truth, it'll set you free. And they bow up and they say, we have never been slaves. Never. And Jesus could have said, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look at that little tent you're living in. Why are you living in that tent this week? Do you remember the story of the Exodus? Have you forgotten Pharaoh? Maybe you've forgotten the period of the judges where the Philistines ruled over you and subjected you to bondage. Maybe you forgot that the Assyrians came and carried Israel out of the promised land into slavery. Maybe you forgot that Babylon did the same thing to Judah. Perhaps you've forgotten that Rome actually rules over you right now. He could have shown them all the instances in which they were slaves. Instead, he jumps to the most severe, most hopeless form of slavery at all. And it's not to the Romans or to the Egyptians, or to anyone in between in that storyline, it's to sin. And he says, let me tell you something. You think you've never been a slave. If you practice sin, you are a slave to sin. It's not just that you're bad, and it's not even just that you're spiritually dead. It's that you are in bondage to the very thing that you think will make you free, and you are powerless to set yourself free from that. So number one, he points out, Whoever practices a sin is slave to sin. Secondly, the truth of the gospel will set you free. The truth of the gospel will set you free. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. Look down at verse 35. He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And I just want to point out the obvious. In verse 32, he says, The truth will set you free. And down in verse 35 or verse 36, he says, The son will set you free. And he's not talking about two different ways to be set free. He's talking about the gospel. The truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, will set you free. It will set you free from the power of sin. It will set you free from the penalty of death. And it's only found in the good news about Jesus Christ. This is the only way to find freedom. And it's worth just stopping this morning and reminding ourselves of what the good news is. The good news doesn't start with us, it starts with God. God who in the beginning created us in His image so that we could know Him and love Him and worship Him. The problem is that none of us have lived up to be the kind of people that God created us to be. We've all fallen short of that. We've all sinned. And the result of our sin, the wages of our sin, the consequence of our sin is that we are, in fact, bad people. We're wicked people. We're treasonous rebels, the Bible says. We're spiritually dead. We don't have life in and of ourselves. And we're in bondage. We're slaves. And the good news of the gospel is that in eternity past, God decided to do for us what we would have never been able to do for ourselves. He decided to send His Son. God the Father sent God the Son to live a life of obedience and to die on the cross for us, taking our death and our punishment so that we could be forgiven. And not only did God the Father send God the Son, but then God the Father and God the Son send God the Spirit. And God the Spirit comes, and when we're dead, He makes us alive. And when we're enslaved, He sets us free. And the good news of the gospel is this. If you will repent of your sin, if you'll turn away from it and agree with God about your sin, stop making excuses, stop blaming other people, just agree with God about your sin, and you will believe the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, you will move from death to life, from slavery to freedom. And it is the only way that you can know true freedom. It's the only way. The good news, the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ. I love the way the old hymn writer says it, William Newell, in a hymn called At Calvary. He says, years I spent... In vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul or my burdened heart found liberty. It found freedom. Where? At Calvary. At the cross. Where Jesus gives his life so that we could live so that we can move from death to life, where Jesus lays down his life so that slaves could be set free. Jesus is talking about very basic, very central truths about sin and salvation. Sin makes you a slave, and only the gospel will set you free. And number three, disciples believe in and abide in Jesus' word. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will abide in his word and you will believe in his word. Both of those things. Verse 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Here's the test. If you abide in my word, you are truly 
my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We all like that freedom part. We all want to get to the end of the verse where he talks about the truth setting you free. And people quote that verse in all sorts of crazy contexts. Just don't forget that at the beginning of that statement, Jesus says, yeah, the truth will set you free, but here's how you know that you're truly a disciple. It's if you abide, if you live, if you continue, if you endure in my word. It's been rumbling for a while, but it's become this last week. You've heard an interesting development. It's been rumbling for a while, but it's become big news this week. It's about a hip-hop artist named Kanye West, okay? Kanye West. He's married into one of the craziest families in the whole world. And for a lot of years, he's been known for a lot of not great things. And at different points in his career, he has even compared himself, put himself on the same level as God, almost trying to deify himself in a sense. And you can say, well, he's joking or he's not joking, but he's done that. And recently, he's claimed to have gone through a religious conversion experience. He said for several weeks now, several months now, I've been born again. I believe the good news about Jesus. And this week he released an album. He's been promising it for a while called Jesus is King. And so all these people on social media do what all the trolls on social media do. They start arguing and start talking about things that they don't really know about one way or the other. And with this development, you've got two groups sort of duking it out on social media. Okay, you've got one group over here who says this is a publicity stunt. This is a PR ploy. This is a guy trying to sell albums, and he'll say whatever he needs to say to sell albums, and all you dopey Christians are so excited that a celebrity signed up on your team that you're buying it, you're taking it hook, line, and sinker, and he's not real, he's a phony baloney, it's just a big joke. Over here, and this seems to be more of what I've seen, but there's been plenty of that. Over here, you have a bunch of Christian people celebrating his conversion, being very excited about his conversion, beginning to say things like, just think about how God could use this man if he were truly converted. And look at the lyrics of the album. It may not be your favorite style of music, but it seems to be pretty biblical. Look at the church that he's connected with out in California. It's not a, a big, you know, entertainment type church. It's a, a Bible preaching church. It's a good, solid church. It seems like he's saying all the right things. Uh, it seems like there's been a change in his life. And you've got this group over here celebrating. And you've got this group over here questioning. And you've got both groups arguing with each other. What do we make of this? Especially as you think about John 8. Number one, maybe we should just step back and remind ourselves that if God wants to save celebrities, he can do it. If he wants to save a lot of them, he could use a guy like Kanye, but he doesn't need a guy like Kanye. And sometimes Christians, we forget that. We, we begin to think, think about how God could use that person in their fame and their fortune. Oh, they could be used for so, such great things, such big things. Listen to me. When Jesus picked a bunch of followers, he picked a bunch of nobodies. And those nobodies turned the world upside down. So God can use somebodies, but more often than not, he uses nobodies. The second thing I would suggest to you is I don't think it's healthy for Christians, for us, to immediately default to questioning anybody's conversion. 
I mean, what a crazy thing that we do this online with people that we don't know. Can you imagine if we did that in this room? Like the next time we have a baptism, we'll get up there, we'll have the lights on, we'll bring the person out in the water, Steve will be there taking pictures, and I'll say, all right, let's put it to a vote. Like, what a ridiculous idea, right? Like, that's our job, to sit here and judge what God has done in a a person's life. But can I tell you the most important thing that we need to remember when you think about this situation or anybody's, anybody's profession of faith, a hip-hop celebrity or the child who sits up on the front row of our sanctuary, here's what you need to remember. Jesus gave us the test for genuine discipleship. And it's not a popular vote on social media. Here's the test. Are you ready? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And Jesus said that to a big crowd of people who had quote-unquote believed in him. And he looked across this group of people and he says, let me tell you how you know if you're real or not. It's if you abide. So what, what do we need to do with a guy like Kanye? You need to step back and you need to say, let's check in in a year. Let's check in in six months. Let's check in in five years. Are you abiding, yes or no? It's no different than we would treat our children or our grandchildren who attend this church. Right? Lots of people make a profession of faith. That's not the test. Here's the test. You are truly my disciple if you abide in my word. If you continue in my word. If you endure in the faith. If you persevere as a follower of Jesus. The test is not did you pray the prayer right? The test is not, did you get in the the baptismal waters in the right denomination of church? The test is, do you believe in Jesus and are you going to abide? Yes or no? And Jesus lays it out very plainly here. The alternative, verse 37, is if you don't abide, that the word of Jesus has no place in you. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've professed faith in Jesus, you've done the baptism thing, you've shared it on social media, you've gone to the greatest lengths, but maybe at this point in your life you say, you know what, the word of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, it means nothing to me. And that's the dividing line that Jesus describes. Are you enduring and abiding in his word, or does his word have no place in you? Look, All the things we're talking about, about sin and salvation from John 8, they all have direct bearing as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And I want to walk you through this quickly. All of this applies to the Lord's Supper. Number one, the Lord's Supper is a time of confession. A time of confession. As Baptists, we observe two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the first question we ask any person who gets in that baptistry is, do you confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Will you begin by acknowledging your sin, yes or no? And if a person will not do that, they are not ready to be baptized. And I want to submit to you the same thing is true for the Lord's Supper. We don't gather together to take the Lord's Supper saying, I have been really good for about two weeks now. Haven't missed a quiet time. Invited that person to light the night. Passed out candy out of my trunk. It was freezing cold. I am on a roll. We come and we take the Lord's Supper and we say, God, we're sinful people. We're a mess. We're bad people. Sin makes us dead. It makes us slaves. And God, we're just admitting that to you. We're agreeing with you. 
about our sin. The Lord's Supper is a time of confession. As we take the Lord's Supper, there ought to be an experience in your heart where you're just honest with God about that. God, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve Jesus. You just confess it. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a celebration of freedom. Celebration of freedom. We take the bread and we drink the cup and we remember the body of Christ broken and we remember the blood of Christ spilled. And if you think about it, it's not all that different than the Hebrews so many years ago who celebrated that first Passover and they they ate the lamb and they drank the cup and the blood was smeared on the doorpost and they were doing it in faith, believing that tomorrow we walk out of here free people. And when we take the Lord's Supper, it's really the same thing. We're confessing our sin, but we believe that Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, that he shed his blood to set us free that dead people have been made alive, that slaves have been set free, and we celebrate that freedom. Number three, the Lord's Supper is an expression of enduring faith, or you could say abiding faith. When a person is baptized, it's a, a proclamation that God has started a new work in their life that they have trusted in Jesus for the very first time. And it's a one-time ordinance. You just do it once. The Lord's Supper, we do it over and over and over again. We take it over and over and over again as the people of God. And we're reminding ourselves, it's not just about that profession that I made two months ago, two years ago, 20 years ago. But it's about trusting in Jesus today, abiding in his word and continuing to confess my need for the gospel. So this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you've obeyed his command to be baptized, you've, you've participated in that initial declaration, I am following Jesus, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never given your life to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, our prayer for you this morning is that as the elements come by, you would spend a few moments thinking and maybe praying and talking to God about trusting in Jesus that you would move from death to life, from slavery to freedom, and that you would be able to celebrate the good news of the gospel.